This is episode 53 of the Immunology Podcast, Immunology of Infectious Diseases with Dr. Prasanand Jagannathan. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Raud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Immunology Podcast, please rate us and leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Prasanna Jagannathan from Stanford University on the podcast to talk about his research on the human immunology of infectious diseases. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up, but first... Only two days until Immunology 2023, the annual meeting of the American Association of Immunologists. Jason and I and the rest of the Immunology podcast team will be attending the meeting and we can't wait. Make sure to stop by the Immunology Podcast booth in the Exhibit Hall to win some prizes and learn how your research could be featured in an upcoming episode. Learn more at www.immunology2023.org. And please, let's see you there. Hey, so I get to finally meet you in person after our last failed attempt. I know. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Uh, It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm definitely looking forward. And... It's a jam-packed session. Have you been over the, the, the program? No, no. I'm, I'm going day by day here. So I fly out to Digestive Disease Week ahead of oh, yes. recording. And then from there, I have a day in D.C. to recover and have work meetings. And then I'm going to pick out all the things in the program I'm going to do. And then I'm going to be at Immunology 23. And then after that, I'm going to a microbiome summit in Rutgers. So my, my, my family is not real thrilled with me right now. No. Someone's going to be away. It's like a sailor. He leaves for weeks at a time. Well, but it's going to be fun. Uh, I've been looking at the program and I have to say it's hard to choose because there's so many parallel sessions. I, I, I'm getting a little bit of analysis paralysis right now. Well, the good news is there's two of us. True, true. We need to, we need to divide and conquer, don't we? But I, I would be remiss to also mention the other good news is the drug I've been working on for the last two years was approved. Congratulations. So what's what's the what's exactly the drug? How do we do we can we go to the pharmacy and buy it? Is it like a book? So specialty <laughs> pharmacy only. It's it's v- called Vaust and it's for prevention of C. difficile infection. So after you get it to prevent you from getting it again. Very and it's made of spores, right? Made of bacterial spores, yep. Very nice. Congratulations. You, dear listeners, you 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 don't know because you're not in the behind the scenes, but I have been hearing about the progress of this particular um, item for months. And, you know, it's a lot of work here from you not know, looking at it from the other side and just trying to support here my my good friend. But man, Jason, that's a lot of work, wasn't it? It was it was, it was a hairy few months, but, you know, mm-hmm. now, now there's all smiles. Well, congratulations. I hope you got a nice bonus for that. I hope so too, but relax, get to go to Immunology 23, hang out in DC with some awesome people. It'd be a good time. It can be a good resource if any of our listeners is also interested in pushing a drug through FDA approval. You have it all fresh in your mind, don't that, you? That is very true. You know, talk about all those biopharma experiences. I guess we got to start talking about uh, drugs and papers and stuff. So I'll start with a drug. So this one is methotrexate suppresses psoriatic skin inflammation by inhibiting neuropeptide transporter SLC46. 
A2 activity. And sorry, folks, if I cough a little bit, I'm getting over a really bad case of laryngitis and had to bite the bullet on antibiotics recently. So it's an immunity, came out April 27th. First author is Ravi Bahadarwaj. And last author is Neil Silverman. So high level, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into intracellular pattern recognition receptors. So the NOD family, right? You got NOD1 and you got NOD2. And just for those who reminder, if you get one of these muropeptides or peptides that can get uh, intracellularly, you know, pulled in by a cell, on, so kind of like toll-like receptors, they also involve MID88, but these are intracellular receptors. You've got NOD1 and NOD2. NOD1 is typically we use DAP to activate it. And um, just a little bit of background, that can induce cell damage and death and inflammation and everything. So, they show a couple of things. I'm going to go a little out of order, but I think it, it, it's important just to give the story. So they show that in epidermal keratinocytes in that system with psoriatic-like component, NOD1 activation, where you put bacteria on it that can cause psoriasis, or imiquimod, which is an immune activator, can cause psoriasis. You get pyroptosis through caspase-1 and our favorite, gastermin-D. Who doesn't love, you know, to call it back to gastermin? So, well, they're roasts go back to Dasturman, don't they? They do go on. Oh, well, sorry, yeah, exactly. It, it, it keeps going, but how does it get in? So, there is this family called, called the SL. I'm gonna try to get the full name of it because it's 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 a zesty name, the SLC family, but they're known as solute carrier 15. So, SLC 15 family, but in this case, there is a new family called SL. C46. I don't know why it's 46. Please don't ask me. Um, so they demonstrate, um, and it's been known there's been some NOD-dependent NF-kappa-B reporter activity with these, but they demonstrate that DAP gets in through SLC46A2, and NOD2 ligands get in through SLC46A3. So you can use IE DAP or MDP as to stimulate. If you knock out either receptor, either you lose NOD1 or NOD2. So 46 goes with NOD A2, the smaller number goes with NOD1, and 46 A3, the bigger number, goes with NOD2. That's how I remembered it. Smaller went with smaller, bigger went with bigger, because sometimes they have to be simple that way. And so they do knockout mice. They demonstrate that a NOD knockout and an SLC knockout phenocopy each other as appropriate. So that's how the ligand's getting in to signal NOD. So that's really important to know. Then you can target the receptor. Well, there have been some data that methotrexate and other things affect these pathways. And lo and behold, methotrexate is an inhibitor for SLC46A2 and to a lesser extent, A3. They show this with a bunch of immunofluorescence experiments showing that this, you know, marked chemical can get in. If you put methotrexate, it does not get into the cell. And so long and short, now you're wondering, well, topical methotrexate, so not oral, which has its own issues, right? But topical methotrexate could be a treatment for psoriasis by blocking the microbial driver of it, microbiome, because why not add microbiome in if we're talking about NOD and gastermin or getting all of my favorite flavors of ice cream in one uh, paper Sunday here, we can get this microbial driver of signaling blocked off through a methotrexate as an inhibitor of the receptor. So there you go. 
And, you know, I like the paper. I think it, it gets some good signaling. It gets some good drug ability and all of that. So basically everything you like in a, for in science in one paper, how happy are you about it? Very happy. I mean, if it had fret, I'd love it even more, but it's okay. I can't get everything all in one. Yeah, I guess you get what you can. But I'm, I'm always interested when you see these very old uh, drugs, like methotrexate has been used for cancer. I mean, I don't know. Is it used? I don't think it's used anymore very it's much. It's used for cancer a lot. It's used in inflammatory bowel disease as an adjunct immunosuppressant. Right. But the way it acts is completely different. So it's used for women's health occasionally. Mm. But then it works through a completely different mechanism, right? It's for what people thought methotrexate did in cancer cells than what you're is doing here. Yeah, it's just a straight cellular uh, transport inhibitor. So it has a completely yeah. other mechanism, which really makes you wonder like how often we get the mechanism right. Right. That's like how bad are we at that? Yeah. Probably pretty bad. Yeah. Well, well it worked for a while. And it's nice to, need, to see that you can repurpose some of these drugs. Maybe, you know, uh, you can use for something better. All right. I'm going to talk about our next uh, next paper, which also has the things I like, which is regulatory T cells, great cells, awesome people, awesome cells in your to have in your in your body. So T Rex in tumors, bad news. First, let me go into the authors and then give your credit into the authors. So this paper is called Systematic Elucidation and Pharmacological Targeting of Tumor Infiltrating Regulatory T cell Master Regulators. For it was published in Cancer Cell uh, on May eighth, Alexander. Uh, Obradovic, Casey Ager, and Mikko Turunen are first authors from the lab of Andrea Califano at Columbia University. So what did they do? So they looked into tumor infiltrating uh, regulatory T-cells into different, from in patient, in samples from different types of tumors, from, some, from human patients. And they did this analysis in which they and I think this is very important. They compared the RNA seq, so the transcriptome of T Rex. So they they sorted T Rex populations from tumors, and they compared them from with with other T cells in the tumor and with peripheral peripheral regulatory T cells from the same patient. So they took the transcriptome, and they used a couple of algorithms, which are you know. I don't completely understand the 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 the, the fine grain, but they use two algorithms called one called Arachne and one called Viper, in which they took the transcriptomic signatures of these of these cells, and they inferred regulatory networks. So basically, which genes are regulating this this particular transcriptome, in order to identify what they call master regulators, which would be a transcription factor or a particular receptor that initiates a particular transcriptomic program. And by and that's how kind of they, they evaluate and they, by comparing the transcriptome through this algorithm of different types of cells, they identified what they call master regulators that characterize regulatory T cells in the tumor and are different from either regulatory T cells outside of the tumor, the ones that you need for homeostasis basically, and other T cells inside the tumor that are not regulatory T cells. For example, CD8 cells that you want to keep 
uh, going in the context of a, a tumor response. So doing this, they use, you know, uh, machine learning, random forest algorithms. They, class, they use some classificators. So basically they uh, use a lot of bioinformatics to come up with 17 different master regulators that seem to be driving the particular um, phenotype transcriptome and therefore the phenotype of the regulatory results in the tumor. And basically they, they tested this once in vitro and they show that if, for example, if they overexpress some of these some of these master regulators, they can induce the signature in cells in vitro. And then they ended up identifying um, also through a NOCAD experiment in, in, in mouse models, uh, they also identified that if they knocked out, they depleted some of these candidates, they would also deplete regulatory D cells in the tumor of the mice. So they use a, a mouse model called CHIME or CHIME, which uh, basically is a cast, I think it's very inter interesting because they uh, basically reconstitute a mouse that is uh, uh, with, with a bone marrow that's expressing Cas9, and they transduce the bone marrow with a library of different guide RNAs, in this case, against this. Uh, different uh, master regulator candidates, and they show that then the, there's a depletion of certain particular uh, master regulators in the T-Rex that they see in the tumor. And they come up with that one, there's a couple of, of, of top hits here, but I think the one they focus on the most is what is an enzyme called uh, TR, uh, TRPS1. And TRPS1, um, it really comes up in their in their analyses, and they show that uh, by um, th this particular this particular um, this particular gene is a transcriptional repressor, and which didn't really have a previously known uh, function in, in T cells. So their top candidate from this analysis is a gene called TRPS1, which is a transcriptional repressor that didn't really have a known function in T cells. So they were very happy that they found something that was truly unknown. And they kind of show that by depleting uh, TRPS1, it does really negatively affect the, uh, the, the T-Rex in the tumor, the tumor infiltrating regulatory T-cells, where I, why it doesn't affect either peripheral T-Rex or other T-cells in the tumor. Um, and I like this about the paper. I think it's very important to look into the um, Kind of how transcription factors I mean, go beyond the transcriptome and to trying to understand like the dynamics that this transcriptome uh, uh, brings. But then this paper has a second part. And here I find a little bit of, uh, I have a little bit of uh, an issue with it because it feels like two separate stories that the only thing they have in common is that they're looking into regulatory T cells in the, the tumors. So they find this compound called genzytabin, which is and used for, for uh, cancer chemotherapy. And they also show that by it, using low dose of gemcitabine that is below what is used for chemotherapy, this actually seems to target specifically regulatory T-cells in the tumor. Uh, and together with anti-PD-1 treatment, it really uh, induces tumor rejection in their um, MC38 mouse model. Um, they seem to also, they also suggest that this is through, to some extent, is targeting the regulatory network that, that stems from TRP is one, but I'm less convinced of that from their data. 
Uh, so that's why I feel like sometimes they don't feel very connected these two stories. Uh, but I think in any case is is a very interesting, very interesting result that they have. So master regulators uh, from using these fancy algorithms from their uh, transcriptomic data and a, a new compound that we already used, uh, like Metatrack said, we're re repurposing an old friend. Yeah, I think that it's interesting that it so specifically targets a subpopulation. I wonder, there's got to be something like pharmacokinetic or dynamic going on. It's like preferentially making them go in. Do they ever solve why it's so exquisitely just that subpopulation? Because that's weird to me. Well, I guess that uh, we know that T-Rex in the tumor or, or like they're quite activated and we know that they have certain markers or they have certain um, proteins that are expressed that are different to the ones in the periphery. Often T-Rex in the periphery have a less activated phenotype. Um, so I, I am not that surprised myself. There have been other uh, proteins. I think a good example is CCR8 that has been associated with T-Rex in the tumor it doesn't seem to be necessary, but they seem they do seem to express this uh, chemokine receptor to levels that in suggest that depleting CCR8 might actually help uh, reduce uh, T-Rex uh, burden in tumor. So I, I'm not that surprised. They're just, um, but I would yeah, it wasn't easy to find. Uh, but I'm not surprised they exist. This this regulators. Interesting. All right. Well. To continue discussing regulation, I'm going to talk about dynamic chromatin accessibility licenses STAT5 and STAT6 dependent innate light function of TH9 cells to promote allergic inflammation. Nature Immunology, uh, April 27th. First author is Aaron Sun. Last author is Daniela Schwartz. So this paper has a lot of detail. I'm going to try to distill the high level. So. IL-9 is a cytokine produced by Th9 cells as a major driver of allergy responses and in multiple systems. And so they use some of those models here. But what's weird about it is that Th9 cells aren't stable. You can barely generate them in vivo. And like once they start making Th or IL-9, they drop off over time. And one caveat for this whole paper is mice are more unstable than humans. For, for all of these studies, but they find the same thing. And so they, they do an exploration and really, um, they determined that it's actually bystander activation. Um, so they purified the cells, they get them to produce what they want. They withdraw T cell receptor stimulation, but find that you know, the Th1 and Th2 in this population stop doing their thing without TCR, but the Th9 keep going and don't lose their re-stimulation even. And so they don't degrade like you usually do when you make a monoculture. So if you put Th1 and Th2 cells with Th9 cells, the Th9 cells keep going. They went, well, this looks like there's some bystander activation going on. And so what they found is that, in fact, it is paracrine cytokines um, IL-1, IL-2, that can drive Th9 to keep going. And then they go down further and find that, um, so it's very specific bystander effects. 
It's not NF Kappa B driven or MAP 3K, very little effect there. They have some, but they find it's STAT5 and STAT6 mediated. And if you use a STAT inhibitor, uh, a power, sorry, a pan jack inhibitor to block STAT signaling, you lose this bystander effect. So at a very high level, what the, and we've known that jack inhibitors could infect allergy, but it's such a big gun, they didn't know how, right? And so what this paper really does is it establishes that these TH9 cells and there's have a STAT5 and 6 program, and they actually look at chromatin remodeling, look at accessibility of the chromatin and see accessibility naturally degrades over time. But if you hit it with these bystander cytokines, the STAT5 and 6 signaling will keep the chromatin open and enable it for longer, although eventually they do exhaust and turn off. And so you have this bystander effect that drives these Th9 cells to keep going. So moral of the story, allergic reaction has, and it's independent TCR. So they can ablate TCR function using um, tamoxifen-induced system or blockade. You don't need the TCR once it exists. You gotta get the cell to exist. But once you have some Th9 producing you know, TH cells going on here. If you you can get rid of the TCR and just have bystander IL-1, IL-2 driving STAT-5 and 6, and it keeps these going. And that's why they're also unstable is without the secondary bystander effect, the signaling goes away. So it's kind of that self-regulation as well. It depends on the paracrine stimulation to maintain its strength. So there you go. Networked immunology. So... I wasn't completely so the is this in the context of allergy in context they, of allergy so does this apply for human do we see th9 in their responses that's something that they observe in actual humans yes and in human cells that they take out and stuff but yes so this is known in people that th9 is important there's just how do you abrogate it and what's going on with these cells and understanding the biology of these t cells has been hard because they try to stop and what they see is this chromatin remodeling suppresses the activity over time, even in the presence of the bystander cytokines. Okay, so another another leg to the to the allergic response. Yep. Uh, yet again. Okay. All right. Um, then to finish our science jamboree today, um, second paper of the day. It's actually I'm gonna cheat a little bit because I'm going to talk about one paper, but I'm going to make an honorable mention to another paper, which came out almost at the same time. And they're both uh, looking at the very similar, a very similar new technique, which is very close to my heart because this is a new way of genetically editing cells with, uh, they're focusing on T cells. So also that's good. And basically, uh, this might be a revolution in how we do CRISPR because in this case, usually what the most difficult part of doing CRISPR, especially if you have like primary cells, is getting the CRISPR to the nucleus and getting the, 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 the Cas9 uh, to the place it has to act. And at least in the, in the context of, of immunology, the most common way of, of doing this or a very popular way of doing it is by electroporating, for example, uh, ribonucleoproteins, it is a Cas9 with loaded with a guide RNA. You electroporate cells, like for example, T cells, and then you get the RMP, the Cas9 inside the cell. And then the, these, these RMPs are engineered with nuclear localization signals that will send it to the nucleus where it has to act. But 
for those that we for those uh like me that who do this there's a huge limitation in the sense that electroporation is not super nice for cells and often you you lose a lot of your cells that don't survive after being zapped uh by hundreds of hundreds of volts and that reduces the, the effectiveness of of your of what you're studying you don't get that many cells and for the purpose of making therapeutic cells you know usually uh, the rule of thumb is that the more cells, the better. So there's that's why I was so interested when this paper came out. Uh, this is uh, called peptide-mediated delivery of CRISPR enzymes for the efficient editing of primary human lymphocytes. Uh, that was published in Nature Biomedical Engineering. First authors, Dana Ross, Joseph, uh, Joseph Muldoon, and David Nguyen from the lab of for the collaboration of the labs of Ross Wilson, Justin Aquem, and Alexander Marson. They're all at different uh, types of different universities of California, Berkeley, uh, San Francisco. And they've teamed up to bring a new way of getting your RMP inside yourself. Basically, you combine it with a peptide. And this is it's so easy, it's insane. They combine it with a peptide that has the ability of uh, kind of making its way through the cell membrane. So, uh, and that gets the, the RMP inside the cell. So what they do is, so they, they, we know that we have, the, they exist, uh, cell, what I call cell penetrating peptides that are common from some, from viruses, uses peptides uh, to, to go through the cell membrane. And, they have been used for other purposes, for other kind of payloads. So we know they exist. And there's different versions. You can fuse them from dif different types of peptides. And there's one particular types, which are um, uh, a a chimeric peptides that contain fusions of uh, what is known as an HA2-derived uh, endosomalytic uh, peptide and a uh, cell-penetrating peptide for example, uh, one known as TAD that is derived from HIV. And the uh, endosomalytic paper uh, peptides uh, like HA2 from influenza. And these are important because they disrupt the endosomal membrane and they facilitate the, um, the, the kind of the, the, the translocation from a vesicle that is taken up uh, into the, the, um, the cytosol. So they make a... a different variants of why they, they know that these guys can help get things through the membrane. So they what they start doing, they they make a lot of different variants and they end up finding a particular combination of amphiphilic of amphiphilic peptides uh, that allow the RMPs to get into the cell. So they test 37 different uh, different variants and basically they found one uh, characterized by a sequence a 5k sequence that really does the trick and allows you to get the RMP inside the T cell without having to electroporate or use a virus for that matter. Um, and that seems kind of very, something very simple, but it might be called revolutionary because then that means you don't need to get an electroporator in your lab. You can just basically incubate the cells with your RMPs with these peptides and then just, it works. Uh, so it works very well for, it works, fairly well for knockouts, 
they do have less efficiency than if you electroporate the cells, but they make it up with lower toxicity. Uh, they show that they can do sequential treatment, so they can knock out different uh, genes in sequence. So they do one, then a couple of days later, they do one another round with a different gene. And this uh, prevents having different uh, double-strand breaks at the same time, which might uh, result in translocations or, or weird things happen with the genome. So they reduce that risk by doing it sequentially, which you cannot really do with electroporation because the cells don't survive. And they show that this works for B cells, T cells, and K cells um, with different uh, rates of, of success. Uh, they even show that you can combine it with a viral vector, such as a adeno-associated viral vector, uh, to make a, a knocking. Again, the, the, in general, the efficiencies are lower than if you do it uh, with uh, electroporation, but you get more cells. So, you know, depending on your on your on what you're looking for, this might be uh, the thing for you. And I think what's also very important is that they sh they do some phenotypic analysis and suggest that really the preservation of the phenotype of the cell is minimal compared to what electroporation does to cells uh, when it comes to extracellular markers. And they do a bunch of analyses and really suggest that this is much more genital on the cell. So very interesting. And I then. I just want to shout out to another paper that was also published. This was, was in Nature Biotechnology uh, the day before. This one, actually, should, I should discuss this one more. But this is from, first, also, Zen Zhang from the, uh, the corresponding authors are uh, Junwei Shi, Shelley uh, Berger, and John Wary at the University of Pennsylvania. And basically, they, yeah, they, um, I reach a very similar conclusion. They start with a slightly different approach because they don't use regular Cas9. So they, I think also what's very important of the previous paper is that they just use Cas9 protein that is available commercially. Nothing special. You just add the Cas9 and on top of that, a peptide that you can buy. These guys, they start already modifying, made a modified version of the Cas9 in which they add a, uh, a TAT sequence to it to uh, make it kind of already self uh, uh, self uh, penetrating the the the, the, the RMP itself, and uh, they but they show that on top of that they need to add a peptide uh, that contains a TAD uh, sequence as well to uh, improve the, the the efficiency of the whole system. But in general, they they also reach the conclusion that by using these peptides, you can really kind of even replace the need of having to electroporate the cells. Uh, they don't do like the previous paper, like a side-by-side -side comparison with electroporation, which I would say is a standard of, in the field at the moment, but they do make a really strong argument that this also works uh, with a slightly different peptides, a slightly different conditions, but the idea is the same. So very interesting uh, new development in the field. We'll see how much how others now other labs are going to start replicating. I'm pretty sure many are going to jump into the no electroporation wagon, and we'll see how that how that goes. So, do they have to covalently link the peptides, or they just get surrounded by the peptides and they serve as a carrier? Yeah. So, in the case of the first uh, of the paper from uh, University of California, they just do need to co-culture, and they seem to form some kind of complex because they, when they measure the size of the particles the particles become bigger. So the RMPs are clearly kind of surrounded by this, these peptides. 
uh, in the case of the of the the construct from University of Pennsylvania, they actually have a version of Cas9 that has a fusion with a TAT on top of the nuclear localization signal that all of them have, and then on top of that, they add uh, an extra peptide to to uh, kind of help further. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to see each other very soon here. And mm -hmm. In addition, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Prasanad Jagannathan at Stanford University in just a moment. But before we get to that, we'd like to remind our listeners about Immunology of Infectious Disease News, a free weekly newsletter brought to you by Stem Cell Science News. It summarizes all the latest research, news, jobs, and events in infectious disease and Immunology of Infectious Disease News helps you stay current with the latest COVID-19, HIV, hepatitis, tuberculosis, influenza, and malaria research, which we discuss here soon. Subscribe at immunologyofinfectiousdiseasenews.com. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode. We are joined by Dr. Prasanna Yaganathan. He is an assistant professor of infectious diseases and microbiology and immunology at Stanford University. And he's going to talk to us about his research on malaria, also maybe on COVID, and a little bit about his uh, very interesting career uh, path that I hope that we can discuss today. Thank you so much for joining the Immunology Podcast. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for being here. First, diving into your research, I am very interested in, in, in and also I think malaria is such an important research topic, but I wanted to ask you something. Um, I noticed from your from your uh, from your your CV from your experience that you started your uh, studies studying religious studies at the University of California, and then you went on to medical school. Um, maybe I am not the only one to think that's quite a curious um, career path. And I was wondering, maybe you can share with our listeners how did that transition come to happen. Yeah, I mean, sure. Um, I'll try to be brief, but um, uh, the, I think one of the amazing things about the American educational system is that it allows you to take detours uh, in your in your education um, and take some uh, um, unusual kind of uh, career trajectories. And so, you know, I started at the University of California, Berkeley, um, as an undergraduate. And when I started, you know, I initially thought I, I was interested in science, um, uh, but it was I was very um, when I went into my first chemistry class uh, of 800 students, and I was sitting in the very far back. It was very intimidating, and um, I found it very difficult actually to, to to kind of engage with science as an undergraduate. And um, uh, during my first year at, at Berkeley, I um, I took a religious studies class. At South, uh, it was a, it was a religious studies upper division class in South Asian in South Asian religion um, religion. And uh, for me, as an immigrant, as a child of immigrants, um, it was kind of a beautiful introduction to a college life um, and exploration of identity. Um, and I just fell in love. I fell in love with the critical kind of thinking aspects of uh, of, of thinking about um, uh, not just kind of my religion, but kind of religions of South and Southeast Asia. Um, thinking about the kind of political economy of religions, um, and it was it was it was really you know. Something that happened kind of very early on when I was an undergrad is, is just kind of exploring those uh, that, that identity of myself as well as um, um, that you know a, a space that allowed me to really think critically. Um, so I spent during my junior year, um, I, I actually lived in India for a year and I studied South Asian religions. 
Um, during that period of time, I actually got the opportunity right next to where I was living. There was a, one of Mother Teresa's homes for the dying and destitute. Um, and so I got to volunteer there as, a, um, as, a, as an undergraduate. And, and for me, you know, that kind of was, was the first time in my life where I realized, you know, that, um, um, that I really wanted to do, I really wanted to spend my life working in an applied way um, and to address, um, you know, especially social inequalities um, that, um, that are important in our, in our, in our times. And so um, when I came back, actually, after that year, I, 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 I refocused. I actually, before I went to medical school, I actually taught high school. Um, uh, I, was a, I was a high school science teacher. I did it through Teach for America um, uh, and taught high school science in Southern California and Los Angeles. Um, spent a few years doing that. Um, uh, that was actually the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, that was the most challenging profession. I have incredible respect for teachers um, uh, through those experiences. Um, and um, like through that, um, um, uh, realized that I could potentially make uh, um, a lot of a, a big impact um, through um, uh, through healthcare. And so I actually uh, decided to go to medical school and went to medical school after that. I'm so glad I asked. That's such a wonderful career arc. Uh, it's fascinating. It's really, really interesting. So having gone through med school myself, I know sometimes there's defining moments in your life or a defining story or something that makes you go, either that's what you got you to med school or you keep remembering while you're in med school when you would rather quit and open a coffee shop at certain points. From your travels and your experience teaching, is there any one such thing that stuck with you kind of as that beacon when you went to med school then on? Yeah, I mean, there's two things. Um, one, uh, I, I always think back to this, you know, um, um, well, I, I, so I was a religious studies major in undergrad. You know, I really never held a pipette. I wasn't really, you know, I never worked in a lab as an undergrad. Um, and I went to medical school and I actually went to medical school and had the the distinct privilege of being able to work with partners in health. Um, and Paul Farmer, um, um, who passed away last year, um, but I was really fortunate to have those opportunities to work with that organization and think about um, kind of social, the social determinants of health and think about kind of our role as providers of health um, uh, um, in, you know, kind of addressing uh, social inequality and social injustice. Um, um, Specifically, you know, I was I was interested in kind of the nexus between uh, um, social justice and infectious disease because there's there's such an important uh, relationship there. And um, but I remember um, early in medical school um, uh, listening to a lecture uh, by Bruce Walker. I don't know if you know Bruce Walker, but he is um, a professor at the Reagan Institute at Harvard and um, just a wonderful uh, um, physician scientist who's you know sp spent you know his career studying the human immunology of HIV infection. Um, and he gave just a very compelling talk. Um, um, uh, when I was, a, I think, a first-year medical student. And for me, that was one of my first times thinking about the potential of the human immune system. And, um, and so I decided, actually, to take a very different tour, uh, uh, trajectory in medical school. I actually took a year off in med school, and I joined the Howard Hughes Medical Institute um, NIH Research Scholars Program that, that was actually run in the, it was, we were housed in the cloister um, on, the, on, on the campus of NIH. And I spent 18 months there in the lab of Mark Connors and uh, um, Steve McGillis, uh, who um, are also kind of human immunologists um, uh, and think about CD8-mediated uh, control of HIV infection. And for me, that was my first experience holding a pipette. Uh, it was my first experience 
uh, asking a hypothesis, a true hypothesis. It was my first experience failing in a research experiment. It was my first experience of um, of having, you know, of 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 of. Of, of, of being successful in an experiment as well. And that for me was, you know, just completely career altering. I, I just fell in love with research um, after that. And I fell in love with the idea of asking questions. I fell in love with the potential of the human immune system. Um, and for me, like, you know, with my winding kind of path through, you know, religion and social justice, um, it, it, it again, took yet, yet another turn and I became fascinated with you know, how we could potentially harness the human assist, immune system to ask, to, to address really important problems in our in, in the faces. I guess that probably your current uh, focus uh, in your lab of malaria and your uh, your collaborations, you have a lot of collaborations with people in the ground in Uganda, in particular, if I understand correctly, probably is also related to that, to yeah. the original interest in, in, in how medicine can uh, advance uh, many people at the same time. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your lab, now we can ask you more about your science and your research, what is your lab focusing in when studying malaria? And also maybe we can you can uh, uh, tell us a little bit about how did it come about uh, studying COVID as well as part of your research? Sure. Yeah. So I... Um... When I was in my clinical training, I, I did my clinical training in, in, in internal medicine and infectious disease at UCSF. Um, and during my clinical training, I had the opportunity to uh, to go to Uganda. Well, actually, um, uh, I, one of my um, residency um, attendings. Uh, so these are the people that help us learn about how to be doctors. Um, he, uh, his name is Grant Dorsey. And uh, at the time he said, hey, you know, we're doing a, this clinical trial in Uganda. You should come and work with us in Uganda and learn a little bit about malaria. And for me, like that, I had really very little, I, very, I knew very little about malaria at the time. This was, you know, as, as, a, as a clinical trainee. And so I spent a few months in Uganda and that's, you know, when I went there, you know, um, uh, and, and learned about, um, this disease, how impactful and important it is in places like East Africa and Uganda, for example, where we've worked. Um, um, and also like how fascinating a disease it is. It's a disease that we've essentially evolved with. Um, uh, it was really, it was, I, I became really excited about the possibilities of working um, in the context of malaria and asking important questions about uh, naturally acquired immunity to malaria. And the, you know, in places where we work, for example, in Eastern Uganda, uh, Kids will get kids get infected over and over with malaria. So when they're young, when they're less than five years of age, for example, some kids, you know, and on on average, um, kids are getting malaria four, five, six times a year. Um, just a ton of malaria, and uh, um, and every time they get malaria, they have they're they're at risk of dying. They're at risk. They're they're they they they're sick. They're they're their parents or their guardians have to bring them into the into the clinic to get them treated. Um, you know, they they lose work. It's it's a, it's an incredibly impactful disease. Um, it's, it's, it's really, a, you know, unlike any disease that we deal with, um, for example, um, in North America and Europe, for example. And, and so the societal impact is really profound. Um, but what's also fascinating about malaria is that it's a disease that with repeated exposure, uh, children are eventually able to tolerate parasites without developing symptoms. And this is uniform, um, uh, um, such that like if you go to school-aged children, for example, um, and you test them for the presence of malaria parasites in places where malaria is highly endemic, you know, almost all school-aged children will have evidence of malaria parasites, but they just won't have symptoms. Um, similarly with adults, um, they'll have lower levels of parasites that might not be detected by microscopy, that need to be detected by, by, by PCR, for example, but you can detect parasites in almost everybody. And so it's this disease where when you're very young, 
you get sick over and over again. But if you survive those early uh, uh, those early life challenges, uh, then as you get older, you're able to tolerate parasites without symptoms. And and so this was fascinating to me. This is fascinating to us as malaria immunologists thinking about the mechanisms by which uh, um, the immune system actually evolves this capacity to tolerate parasites without symptoms. And so that's that's the main thrust of our lab is really trying to understand, uh, you know, what are what are mechanisms that actually facilitate the the, the development of asymptomatic parasitemia, and uh, um, and so and the and then the other question that we have as a lab is how does you know uh, does intervening, um, uh, for example, with 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 highly effective preventive interventions uh, like chemo prevention, for example, how does intervening early in life impact this acquisition of naturally acquired immunity or exposure dependent immunity? And so those are kind of the two series of questions that our lab has really been focused in uh, um, over the last several years. I wanted to hone in on that bit now a little bit. You had mentioned, you know, with this focus, how early exposure changes things. And if I was reading your research right, and correct me if I'm wrong or elaborate if I'm on the right path, part of it matters that it's a kid being exposed, right? If you were just a hot drop an adult in at age 30 and exposed to the malaria bunch, they're not going to get the same pseudo tolerance to in, in the same way that you get if it, you started with as a kid. So if that's correct, or if not put me on the right path, what is it about that childhood immune system that's different, that's enabling this? You know, it's a good question. There actually are not great examples of experiments where we actually take adults and repeatedly expose them. Um, um, you know, we actually we we you know there were there were forced experiments in the 1940s and 50s of, of prisoners, you know, uh, to treat syphilis, and so we actually experimentally infected prisoners. And and there's some data from the 1940s and 50s that over the course of repeated infections, um, the fever threshold or the 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 the, the temperature that was experienced by these individuals uh, um, actually declined uh, um, with repeated exposure. Uh, that's actually there's actually now some controlled human challenge uh, experiments that are actually testing this. In Edinburgh, for example, they're actually testing in adults what happens when you repeatedly infect an adult and are finding very similar things that actually that with repeated infections, adults also uh, eventually acquire this, this capacity to, you know, to have asymptomatic parasitemia. Um, and so I don't, I do absolutely agree with you that there's something that's somewhat unique about the developing child immune system or the infant immune system. They're, these infants are exposed early in life. They're probably ex they're exposed to parasite antigens in utero as well. So these th this exposure kind of occurs very early in their lives. But uh, um, um, but this process of kind of exposure dependent immunity, I think, also occurs in adults as well. Can I ask a very basic question regarding? how malaria and, and the disease it causes uh, really works. So if you have as asymptomatic parasitemia, how bad is that? Because I always understand that the worst part of malaria is the, the fever and the, and the pain that you get from the immune reaction against it when the parasites are in your blood. But then what is the advantage and, and how did we evolve to, or how does it make sense to evolve to have this maybe tolerance? Is that a correct word? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think infection tolerance or disease tolerance, you know, it's 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 you know distinct from kind of our immuno immunologic tolerance, although there's probably a little bit of overlap there um, uh, mechanistically. Um, I think we evolve with it because it's a way that allows for mutual existence of both the parasite and the human. And on an individual level, um, being able to tolerate the parasite without having symptoms or sequelae is 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 obviously advantageous to us as humans. Um, 
but there's it's not it's not all like rosy. Um, it, you know, if you have asymptomatic parasitemia, you know, there's there's actually a fair amount of evidence that you know asymptomatic parasitemia in school-aged children is associated with you know uh, um, uh, with worse uh, cognitive performance and worse school performance, for example. Um, the most important thing is that if you have asymptomatic parasitemia, you're still a you're you're still a, a a transmitting host. So if a mosquito bites you, for example, and then transmits it to a pregnant woman or a young infant, um, it puts them at risk. And so it's, it really kind of establishes the it, it maintains a reservoir of ongoing transmission that I think at a population level is 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 really what we want to try to what, what we want to eliminate. Um, so I think on an individual level, there's benefits because it it. it it, it allows us to survive, um, but uh, on, a, on, a, on a population level and, and um, also, you know, even maybe even at an individual level with regards to, you know, kind of unanticipated consequences of parasitemia, um, I think that there's uh, real issues with it. All right. So diving head in now, malaria, we, you've kind of described how it's a scourge. I think a lot of people have heard about how much of a scourge it is. Um, what do you think are the promising treatments? out there coming up for it? Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a great, great question. I mean, I think one thing to remember is that we have highly effective curative treatments for malaria. Um, there's, there is a specter of drug resistance that's there. It's very real specter, but, um, you know, 2023, if you, um, um, are a child living in, in, in African settings, you have access to treatments that are hundred percent curative. Um, the issue, though, is that these curative treatments don't prevent you from getting reinfected, and so uh, the most commonly used antimalarial artemisinin, um, you know, uh, one, it will, it will, it will, you know, if you if you if you're infected with malaria parasites and you're symptomatic, you get this treatment over three days, the parasites will go away um, and you'll be fine, but then you'll be at risk for reinfection within a couple of weeks, um, and 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 so these kids will get reinfected again, so. When I think about uh, really promising interventions, we actually are on the cusp, I think, of some of some some incredibly important breakthroughs, um, and that is really to, to 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 try and prevent infections from the first place, and or potentially engender uh, um, you know a more a better immune response against uh, against the parasite to prevent infections. And so I think there's two kind of classes. One is the the vaccines, and so. Um, the malaria vaccine that's been approved uh, was approved at you know November of 2021, I think. Um, uh, um, was the RTSS vaccine. That vaccine was in development for, for, for decades, um, or has been in development for decades. Um, the first phase three clinical trials were conducted more than 10 years ago, or were reported more than 10 years ago, and they showed that at least in the first year after a vaccination, children were protected about, you know, it actually had a protective efficacy of, of around 50%. So not fantastic, um, but certainly better than any other vaccine candidate that had, that had been tested before then. Um, the vaccine efficacy wanes actually fairly rapidly rapidly, um, such that over, uh, you know, a three to five year period, the, the efficacy is probably closer to 30%, um, which again, isn't great. But if you think about this idea that kids are getting repeatedly infected, um, even averting, you know, 30% of cases, for example, uh, represents a, a really big uh, um, win, I think, for the malaria um, prevention community. So that's one vaccine that's that was that was approved um, uh, by the WHO and and is, is slowly starting to be rolled out. Um, there's issues with production. Um, uh, GSK is not going to provide this vaccine uh, um, at, at large scale, but they are committed to providing it on in, in some in some smaller scales. And then they're also committed to licensing this technology to uh, to a company in India, uh, Bharat Biotech, I think, um, that's going to to produce this vaccine. Um, 
So that's one exciting uh, development. The other exciting development is kind of a, a second generation or next generation malaria vaccine called R21 that was developed at Oxford. Um, and uh, um, so this vaccine is very similar in, in ways to RTSS. It's the same antigen. It just has a slightly different ratio of, 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 uh, of, of the CSP molecule, which is um, the vaccine antigen. Um, um, in the in the in the nanoparticle in relation to hepatitis B core antigen, and um, it's it's uh, so this R twenty one vaccine. Um, there's been published results from phase two trials that show it to be very effective, about you know sixty to seventy percent efficacious um, in the first year after vaccination. And um, it hasn't they haven't the result the phase three trial results haven't yet been published, but they were presented a few months ago at a meeting that kind of suggests very high efficacy um, in multiple settings and in in, in, the, um, in phase three trials as well. So. This vaccine has an advantage. It's it's in the end, it's going to likely be very similar to RTSS, but it has the advantage that um, it's being uh, it's going to be produced by the Serum Institute of India, um, and uh, and it's going to be potentially much uh, much uh, potentially much cheaper than um, RTSS to to produce at least. Well, that, at least that's the hope. And so it, 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 there very well could be a a bigger market for R twenty one to to be out there. So I think vaccines is one big uh, um, aspect that we're all very excited about in the malaria um, kind of community. And then the other kind of more interesting uh, um, uh, therapeutic or preventative intervention that I think we're very excited about is this idea is, is our monoclonal antibodies. And so um, uh, the NIH, the in, the in the Vaccine Research Center, Bob Cedar's lab um, developed uh, several years ago uh, um, a monoclonal antibody. Um, CIS-43LS um, that they tested in phase one clinical trials, um, found to be very effective in phase one. And uh, late last year, uh, the NIH Peter Crompton's group tested this vaccine in Mali and found it to be highly protective against infection in Mali and adults. Um, and so um, um, this was the first generation, this was the first generation monoclonal antibody that was given intravenously. Um, they have a second generation monoclonal antibody, L9LS, that can be given that can be given subcutaneously. And that 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 monoclonal antibody is being tested in uh, younger children, um, both in Kenya and in Mali. And uh, um, there's a lot of momentum to try to make it's it's so effective that there's a lot of momentum to try to make this uh, um, uh, more widely available and to actually potentially produce it at scale at a cost that's 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 reasonable. Uh, I think there's still a lot of logistic hurdles to kind of make that happen, but I think there's a lot of there's a lot of excitement and commitment within the re the research community to to kind of to to, to translate um, this highly preventive protective intervention um, to the field. That is super interesting. I was not aware that the monoclonal antibodies were so advanced uh, and they were so promising. I remember discussing the results of the RTSS vaccine trial during my a vaccinology course at university. <laughs> so that's how long it's been since yeah. uh, that uh, since that that vaccine has been in development. Clearly, but it's good to know that now there's better alternatives and new therapies are being delivered in a way. It always malaria is such a understudied or given the, the the magnitude of the impact that it has on human life, it always feels like it's a little bit understudied. To get to the immunology of this a bit, why is it so hard to gain an immune response to malaria? Like you get infected, you get treated, you get infected two weeks later. That's pretty bad. Yeah. I think I think there's a I think there's a you know I think there's a couple of different aspects um that that make it that, that make our immune system pretty um ineffective at kind of dealing with repeated infections. Um, 
One is that it's obviously it's a it's a it's a big organism, you know, more than five thousand genes, lots of antigenic variation. Uh, the organism actually has, you know, this this capacity to uh, um, uh, um, not just have diversity, but also it can epigenetically modify the antigens that are actually on the surface of an infection red blood cell, for example, to evade the host immune response. And it's quite effective um, at doing that. And I think it's it's you know some some think of it as kind of a uh, as a as a as a. Uh, um, you know, as a as a battle, kind of back and forth between the host, host immune response to kind of get at get at variants and get at these different these antigenic targets. I think that is very important. I think that there's other things as well. Like one aspect that our lab has really been interested in is is this idea that you know malaria itself induces an incredible inflammatory response. Um, um, there's lots of innate immune sensors that can recognize the parasite that actually produce a, a pretty profound inflammatory response that are likely responsible for the symptoms of infection, um, and that actually that inflammatory response pretty rapidly uh, engenders a regulatory response as well to, to, to really dampen down that um, inflammation. And the impact of that regulatory response on, uh, on, on susceptibility to reinfection, for example, I think is very important. I think uh, a lot of us are think, you know, have been thinking about you know, the role of regulatory T cells, for example, not conventional VOXB3 positive uh, Tregs, but um, other non-conventional uh, regulatory T cell populations like type one regulatory T cells. And uh, thinking about if, if those are induced, for example, following a malaria infection to kind of help deal with inflammation, what's the impact in terms of um, both on uh, antigen persistence as well as the the risk of reinfection. Um, that's that's that that I think is also um, likely plays an important role in in our inability to kind of deal with reinfection following repeated infection. Also, if I may ask about one of your recent publications, you also looked at the at the role of members of the innate immune system, particular NK cells. What can you tell us about their role? And I guess if particularly in young children, they might even be more relevant to, yeah. to the protection. So, you know, I think what's 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 fascinating, I think, you know, about uh, um, uh, about our understanding of immunology over the last 10 years is, is that our, our appreciation that there could be adaptation within the innate immune compartment has, has, has really grown. Like we understand now that innate immune cells, myeloid cells, hematopoietic, uh, hematopoietic uh, progenitor cells, um, natural killer cells, gamma delta T cells, um, that all of these innate-like cells um, actually have a capacity to remember um, uh, pathogens or remember kind of insults and, and respond differently upon uh, a secondary um, a secondary insult. Um, and, and, and we've been kind of asking that question within the context of malaria. Does malaria actually shape the innate immune compartment similar to um, you know, how what's been described, for example, with, with, with uh, vaccine adjuvants or with BCG or with kind of this, this concept of trained immunity? And, uh, and, and so when I was a postdoc in uh, Maggie Feeney's lab at UCSF, um, we were particularly interested in gamma delta T cells and trying to understand how repeated malaria infection actually drove uh, um, a, um, uh, a dysregulated inflammatory response from gamma delta T cells. Um, and, and more recently, so in my lab at Stanford, we studied how malaria actually might be shaping uh, the natural killer cell response. And um, so we took advantage, we, we, do these, we, we do these longitudinal cohort studies where we actually follow kids over many years, over many years and many infections. And, and within within that setting, we're able to, we can actually look and see whether or not, for example, uh, um, the you know various cell, the, the various cells in the innate immune compartment might change over time. And in that paper, I think um, th that you're referencing, what we just what we described was this uh, was a phenomenon where we saw that children who are repeatedly exposed to malaria 
had expansion of a really unusual NK cell population. These were NK cells, uh, human NK cells that lacked expression of CD56. So they're kind of these CD56 negative NK cells. They have high expression of CD16. Um, uh, they, don't, um, they don't respond well to myeloid cytokine stimulation. For example, like if you if you uh, if these cells are uh, um, are, are, are stimulated with IL-12, IL-15, IL-18. They don't respond well um, to that stimulation, but they are very effective at performing antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. And what was really interesting about this study is we, 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 so we saw this with repeated exposure, we saw this kind of maturation or adaptation of the NK cell response. Um, uh, and, and we saw that these NK cells were highly functional. But um, in our setting, um, uh, we took advantage of this natural experiment that occurred where uh, the Uganda Ministry of Health came in and sprayed homes with insecticides to drive down malaria transmission. And so we, we actually followed children before spraying of insecticides and after spraying of insecticides to see how stable this phenotype was. And, you know, within six months of, 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 of uh, spraying of insecticides and, and, and driving down of transmission, we saw significant declines in the capacity of NK cells to perform ADCC, as well as declines in this particular subset of NK cells, these CD56 negative NK cells. And, you know, after three years of, of spraying, um, the these, the children that lived in this malaria endemic setting, they looked like kids that lived in the malaria non-endemic setting. They had none of these cells that were CD56 negative, for example, really suggesting that you know, malaria might be driving this adaptation of, 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 of natural killer cells to make them, you know, and, and, a, and a more highly functional population emerges, but it requires repeated exposure to the, to the parasite. That's really interesting, this effects of repeat exposure and like a permanent and not, I guess not a permanent adaptation, right? Because what if it reverts, but like a new shift in homeostasis. I think you mentioned something really important I wanted to get back to, which is you've been doing a lot of collaboration. Obviously, you're not going to study malaria patients in the U.S. And so you've developed these collaborations with other governments and groups. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you're successful at doing that? Because I think that's an important piece of information for people interested in this type of work. I think it. Super, yeah, super important and and really kind of really critical. So, um, I'm part of a. I mean, so we work. My, you know, our Ugandan collaborators with whom we work are, are are an NGO. They're they're called the Infectious Disease Research Collaboration. Uh, I think they're one of the largest nonprofit employers in Uganda. They you know have several hundred um, employees. They uh, and and they're focused on infectious disease. They do a lot of work in malaria. They but they do work in HIV. They do work in tuberculosis as well. Um, and um, and and we've you know so I've been part of this collaboration since I was a trainee um, at UCSF, but the collaboration actually, you know, has, has been around for more than 20 years. Um, it was started in the late 1990s. It was a collaboration between Phil Rosenthal and Moses Kamia. Um, uh, um, and, uh, and, and I think, I think the important lesson or the lesson there is, you know, that these collaborations or this type of work takes time to build it. It's, 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 it's difficult to kind of just drop in and say, oh, let me, let me get some samples to kind of study that, 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 you know, it, th these are much more, I think, involved in long-term types of collaborations that really should be driven by the, the, the questions that are important to our, to our colleagues that are, you know, dealing with this disease, you know? And so um, when, when uh, the collaboration started in the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, the main focus of interest was, was trying to test novel antimalarials or different antimalarials because at the time chloroquine was the drug that was um, being used and it was a suboptimal therapy. And, you know, the, the real need was to do new clinical trials to test alternative um, antimalarials. 
Um, that you know was followed by studies of drug resistance, for example, and the, and the malaria the malaria collaboration with IDRC was focused on testing new antimalarials as well as uh, evaluating for drug resistance. Over time, that's 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 evolved, and now the collaboration studies host immunity, for example, uh, studies preventative interventions like chemo prevention. Study the, the collaboration studies uh, um, modifications to housing for to houses, for example, to make them less you know, amenable to uh, uh, to, to the, the, the Anopheles mosquito, mosquito habitats, for example. There's just, there's just a wide um, spectrum of things that are done. And I, and I think it's, I think what's, what's made the collaboration successful is that it's really been driven by the, 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 the interest and the desires of, of the team in Uganda who deal with this pathogen on a, on a you know, on a daily basis. Uh I always I come from originally from South America, so I think it's so valuable to to give countries that are less uh, have less advantages when it comes to biomedical research the chance to contribute to the research of their own the diseases that affect their own people. And I think it's so important, also in the context of these you know, researchers in these countries that many of them I assume want to stay and work in their own countries. They don't necessarily have to leave in order to have a scientific career. So I think it's so important to keep this kind of, of collaborations and to really help or to really su support a research done in, in kind of the global south or outside of the usual places. So that's very valuable. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that you know we 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 still have a lot of work to do um, um, in that space, and think in terms of in terms of kind of supporting careers and supporting career development. I think you know in 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 you know in North America, Europe, there's a there's Australia, there's a there's a you know pretty clear kind of route for education for advancement for you know where, when you can go from you know uh, being being a trainee to being you know a faculty member to you know to writing successfully grant for grants. It's that those transitions are much more challenging and in places like Uganda where the infrastructure doesn't really exist to, to truly support that. And I think we as researchers still have a lot of work to do to try to bring, you know, bring bring those opportunities and and and, and real equity um in, in research funding and in research advancements um, to those settings. Well, that's a very nice, I think, uh topic in which to kind of uh, reach the end of our conversation. And I would like to ask you, so we'd like to ask our guests a little question to get the know, to know a little bit better so our, our listeners can uh, have more, something besides their research. I think we discussed a lot about your, your career uh, uh, journey. So I think we, we did learn a lot about you, but we're going to ask you a different question. Uh, if there was one hobby that you always wanted to pursue but never have been able to, what is it? <laughs> um, it's a great question. I think uh, if there's one hobby that I've always wanted to pursue that, I mean, I, I've dabbled, but I, I but really not really get into it, is, um, is actually being a DJ. Um, I really enjoy DJ. I really enjoy DJing. Um, when I was actually at the NIH, um, in the um, uh, in the cloister program, we would have these house parties, and I would uh, I would love DJing those parties, and so something that the the the, the feeling of actually um, of playing music and 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 um, kind of being able to kind of control a crowd is very it's very exhilarating actually. I would love to have uh, I'd love to maybe be a DJ. My my kids though they're 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 abhorred. They're like you can't be a DJ. <laughs> <laughs> oh kids. Well, uh, 
I guess, are you attending any conference in the future? I think you're the organizers. They don't need to get a DJ. You can just, you can just uh, ask you. <laughs> there you go. They'll be stuck with 90s hip hop, though. I don't know. At a certain point, that becomes oldies but goodies. But uh, yeah, that's... that's I mean, I would assume that most of us uh, millennials or older would be fine with that. So <laughs> the younger people, well, they need to adapt. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, and you know, just a plug. Uh, um, April twenty fifth is uh, World World Malaria Day, and uh, and so I know I think this will be after that. But it's, it's just a reminder for us to think about malaria and the, you know, how bad it is. But then also, you know, how much there's a lot of optimism I think to kind of uh, over the next a period of time that we'll be able to really make a dent uh, in malaria around the world. Absolutely. Maybe it's also a good moment to ask you if there's any open positions or if you're looking for researchers uh, to join your lab. Is there anything you want to publicize? This is the time as well. Yeah, absolutely. Always looking for excited postdocs and students who are interested. So definitely uh, um, feel free to reach out to us, um, our our lab website or my email um, are the best ways to kind of get in touch. Or also by Twitter. Um, I think our, our last two postdocs, one at least one of them found us on Twitter. So uh, that's definitely a way to get in touch. Well, listeners, now you know, if you want some very exciting and very impactful Uh, research options, then you know who to contact. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Brenda. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time. 